So here we are deeply amidst the Chayus Alvavis's discussion of how an internal dialogue takes place, and he's cast the roles of the two participants in this dialogue to be the Seichel and the Nefesh, who we understand to be the true inner self discussing life, guiding the experiential self. And the experiential self is easily pulled, and we're at a point in the discussion where that experiential self is turning towards its internal guide and mentor and asking for direction. And the guide and mentor says, listen, this is not going to be easy for you because it's going to allow you to, it's going to cause you to let go of some of the bad stuff you've been eating. And when the Seichel says that to the Nefesh, he's not speaking about food. He's speaking about being, the stuff you've been doing. And it's interesting that he uses an analogy of, of eating bad food, but he breaks it down into two areas. There are two parts of you which are going to cause you obstructions to pursuing your spiritual goal. Spiritual goal, obviously, is to become, and this is an interesting way he puts it, you know, his version of this, at this stage of his work of spirituality, is a um, real reciprocity to what the Bar-Odam Hashem has done for you and the sense of being cognizant of the multiple avenues of goodness which are showered upon you on a regular basis and responding to that with a sense of appreciation, gratitude and call to action. In other words, his interesting reflection on what true spirituality begins with is reciprocity. And if you get into that, it actually is quite sensical that the bird, um, he just gave me this breath to breathe and the, the ability to speak and utter these words. That's big. That's huge. Now what did I, what did I, did I, did I give back? What did I respond with? We all have an intuitive sense that if we're given something, we need to, it's almost programmed internally. We need to respond to what's been given to us. It's, it's, it's almost a normal function. It's an interesting point. It's, it seems to be so fundamental in the, in the higher element of, of humanity that um, one of the areas where in the narrative of the formation of, of humanity, according to the, 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 the narrative of the Torah text, when Adam and Adam his, his um, critique is that he wasn't grateful for having been given Chava Eve as his wife. And that was like the, the, the critique that was lodged against him. But it seems to be an interesting critique, unless you understand that thankfulness is fundamental to humanity, certainly to spiritual humanity. In fact, if you go to the source of why Jews are called Jews, comes from the word Jude, Jude, Judah or Yehuda, and the name Yehuda literally means to give thanks. So we give thanks. But giving thanks is not the easiest thing in the world, because every thank you is also an admission of fallibility and vulnerability that I needed to rely on you. So thankfulness almost is the expression 
and the opposite direction of the human experience. The human experience is fundamentally one of independence. Power of volition to make choice, to run my life and be an agent of my own existence. And gratitude is a recognition that I'm incapable of doing so. And I need to come onto other people and other forces in order to move forward in life. So the beautiful twist, almost the paradoxical irony of humanity, is projecting oneself forward with the same simultaneous notion, I'm incapable of doing so. But I have to, but I can't, but I have to, but I can't. And that's where gratefulness comes in. And that's why gratitude, the actual word Hebrew, lodot, carries both those connotations. Lodot means both to admit and to thank. So in every thanks, there's an admission of an incapacity to be totally independent. And that cooperation, coordination with others, when given something, since I was meant to be independent, requests a response to almost pay back what I got. And that fills me with gratitude. So my own independence leads to gratitude, which leads to the desire to do something for those who have done something for me. Because I recognize it's not, I should be self-standing. And when someone reaches out and helps me, well then I need to respond to that. If I would be a sponge and a parasite, so then I would take in and not need to respond. A thanks is my first attempt to give something back to what I've been given. But really the true way to respond to having been given something is to give something back. If that's true, comes along the Chavis Elvavis in this internal dialogue between the Seichel and the Nefesh and says, the Nefesh comes and says, I'm ready to start working. Seichel says, I'm not so sure. Can we speak about this, open up this dialogue, which is beautiful to see this internal discussion taking place in the, in the world of the Chavis Elvavis. And of course, in, in our world, which we can start to nurture, says, Do you realize how beholden you are to the Borea Olam, to the Creator, for, for, for absolutely <coughs> everything that He's given you? I mean, can you, can, you repay, can you repay Hashem for, for a day in your life, every breath, every time one of those neurons fires for every time one of those breaths gets blended into your respiratory system and your digestive system and your skeletal system and your nervous system and all those things functioning together perfectly in time to produce this magnificent miracle of life which happens on a second by second basis and that's only the beginning and there's relationships and people that we know and things that we can see with those abilities we can look and we can see the deep blue of the sky we can appreciate the bristling green of the freshly rained upon lawn and we can speak and we can communicate Can we actually put into words a sense of appreciation for being given those gifts on a daily basis? And we wake up in the morning and we say, we can differentiate. The differentiation between night and day is a principle of the capacity to be able to see things apart from one another that without it would be dwelling in confusion for eternity, not being able to know who is close and who is far, what is right and what is wrong, literally what is down, what is night. 
And then when I start to feel this overwhelming sense of, how can I possibly repay the debt that I owe to the Bar Olam? It injects me with a certain amount of enthusiasm and the power to then think that I need to redirect the course of my life and use it as a mechanism of expressing those thanks in every dimension of my being. Because wouldn't it be so incorrect, so a lack of authenticity in the system that I've been given, 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 and I just sit there and I suck it in and I don't respond? So that's how the discussion between the Seichel and Nefesh begins. And the, and the Seichel says to the Nefesh, chiding him, saying, but you know, you have to already have this inside of yourself in order to move forward. And the Nefesh says, well, well tell me, Tell me, can some, give me guidance. I'm looking for wisdom. I'm looking for guidance. And this is all happening internally. The person speaking to himself or the nefesh, to the seichel. And so now the seichel says, well, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to let go <coughs> of some of your bad habits. Where do they come from, says the nefesh? They come from two primary sources. The one is the senses that stimulate you and cause you to become perhaps confused and misdirected and distracted in your life. And the other is your society and the, the sociali socialization of your being which caused a whole lot of internal imbalances which have misdirected you away from the real conversation that needs to be had in your life. Go on, urges the nefesh to the seichel. Seichel responds, It may be hard because you have to think about over focus on eating, drinking, the clothes that you wear, kind of that obsession that if there's not some kind of horseman galloping across my left breast, so then I might as well just take off the shirt, the sweater or the whatever. Menuchas are good for Shalvas that pursuit for just wanting to chill, which has almost become, unfortunately, such a powerful distraction that people have made a semi-religion out of that being the goal. And when the deeper inner yearnings for connection start to stir, they are then put to sleep, if not physically, with a little bit of narcotic assistance. A deep breath, inhalation of the sweet smoke, of the holy herb allows the person to just be, just chill for the sake of nothing. Just chilling because there's too much inside that wants to get up and realize and form and create. And in order to live with that dichotomy, we have to anesthetize the calling and the yearning of the deep inner essence, and therefore we just take another drag, sniff another snort, inject another dose. Don't do it, says the Seichel to the Nefesh. And one of those things, while we are on it, says the Seichel to the Nefesh, are those, those socialization things, what are those kind of things that make up the person that distract them? Well, says the Seichel, back to the Nefesh. not really focusing on what you say. You know, we've been given this gift of speech. 
And it's really what makes us human and allows human humanity to, to move forward in every way. But it's also probably the most powerful cause of division, distraction, upset, hurt and anger. How are you using that incredibly powerful gift? Becoming over-involved in always being surrounded by people and not having enough time to yourself. People-pleasing behavior. They just want you to ingratiate yourself with those of others. Seeking affirmation from external sources. Jealousy about what people are, what people have. Control issues. Trying to get people to do what you want. Respect issues. Not giving people the true honor they see, deserve and not seeing them. Now, these are all the things that are going to act against you, says the Seichel to the Nefesh. And the Nefesh is aware of his fallibilities, ready to confront them. And the Seichel says, if you really want to move forward and respond, reciprocate to the Bo'ola for all the good he's given you, you have to be able to move away from these things. And then I will bring you through the first gate of healing. The nefesh, this ready, honest, experiential self, is a little bit taken away, taken aback by the seichel statement. Says the nefesh, It's not easy for me to give these things up. This has been my life until now, says the nefesh back to the seichel. I'm so used to it. L'chein, turning with wanting eyes, says the nefesh to the seichel, How can I get beyond these things? How can I let go of them? Seichel answers, Don't you know? A person who's rational, who's tragically suffering from some kind of disease, and there's an area of the person's body that has become so infected that it needs to be amputated. But, if it's not amputated, the disease could spread and threaten the life of the person. The rational person, despite the pain and the discomfort and the projected future of being inhibited, in the midst of that disease, will give himself over to the hands of the surgeon. Because living a life which is limited is better than not living a life at all. Losing one limb is better than losing everything. Says the nefesh to the seichel. Says the seichel back to the nefesh, I'm sorry. If you want to rid yourself of all these negative behavioral patterns that have become part and parcel of your personality and self, and they're so hard to let go, 
try to use your understanding for a way up, a decision, a kind of trying to get a sense of what, what are the options, considering two paths ahead of you. What's going to happen if you succeed in relinquishing these self-destructive modes of behavior? What will happen if you don't? If you carefully meditate upon the two projected paths in your life, that should give you the power to liberate yourself from becoming drawn into this self-destructive behavior. So really the Chavis of Abbas is stopping and saying to us, stop. And he's giving us incredible empowering advice as to the nature of how we can be agents of change in our own lives. Not only that we can intellectually understand, because the Seichel is the host of the intellectual capacity and he's telling the nefesh to think. Well, how does the nefesh think? Isn't the nefesh just a conglomeration of emotional forces that plague the inner turmoil of my experiential self? Comes along the Seichel and says, you, my dear feeling self, can also think, can also consider, can also integrate, because we all recognize that intellectual knowledge which floats above the surface of ourselves is like a decapitated person whose head is not joined to his body. Therefore, we have to integrate the thinking into the feeling. And we have to feel the decision. We have to feel the paths ahead of me, which one is better, but not a feeling which is disconnected from the intellect, but which is integrated with the intellect. But nevertheless, it doesn't sound to the self like cold intellectual information, but it's deep resonating. Good stuff. I mean, this is profound and this is deep and you have to like think about, I would call this some kind of internal meditation where you sit and you visualize the different possibilities of what your life is going to look like choosing one path over another. So let's think about some of these things. If that person chooses a path of people-pleasing passivity or people-pleasing activity vis-a-vis real coming to terms of not needing to do that. Well, how, that's going to, how will that pan out? Well, you know, people-pleasing is something which is widespread and it means that I'm always looking to make sure everyone is happy with me. Now what happens if I've got some real emotional needs that need to be expressed? Well, I'll just I'll suppress them. And then what will happen to that? Well, that will become anger. And what happens if I don't express that anger? Anger, well, that will become depression. And then what happens? Well, I'll be depressed. Now, does that look rosy? No. What about if I move beyond the people-pleasing passivity and I recognize I am who I am for who I am and that's just who I am. And if you go and give me a clap or a pat on the back, that doesn't make me bigger or smaller. And I don't need to go and pandy around you in order to get you to say, oh, you're a good guy. I don't need that. Can you feel the liberation of self that that brings? What about jealousy? About jealousy, we're constantly looking at, oh my gosh, I can't believe they've got that, they're wearing that thing, or they've got that thing, or they've got that job. 
what kind of life would they project in? Well, the kind of life, as you get older, you just become jealous of different things and you just perpetuate the cycle of being totally dissatisfied with what you have. And this constant sense of unease about, I've got nothing that really makes it work for me. They do. And if only I would have that thing and be that person with those things. Oh gosh, and then the internal world rots as a person futilely seeks to find something which was never given to him and read the script that was never written for him. And he lives with that anguish. That's one part. The other part is, let go. Let go of that jealousy and live a life of satisfaction and self-connection. And that's not meant for me. That's not mine. I know why, because it's given to him. What I have is all that I need. And embrace the apparent limitations to find within that the power of creativity. Because with all our limitations, we have absolutely everything we need to make music, to make magic, to make. I will. Yeah, question from Meryl. Um, when you put a recorder in, no. <laughs> I think the Rambam says that kas is like an emotion to abstain from completely. Then it's like, but what yes. a, what about what about jealousy? Is there like a healthy way of expressing it or anything? That's an excellent point. So jealousy really can be used in a very healthy way. One of the ways that it's spoken about explicitly is in it's called kinas soifrim tarbechochma. The jealousy of sages promotes wisdom. So what would be if you are competitive with a person in an area which will advance your depth of wisdom. You look at a person and you say, not that you're jealous of the person, but you're jealous of what the person has, and you think, wow, I could have that as well. You know, you see a person who's, who's spiritually advanced. He has a kind of, a real capacity to connect to people, to understand the depth of Torah. To Davin, he said, wow, how can I work on that? I want that that he has. So that can be really healthy. Competition sometimes can be one of the greatest catalysts for self-advancement. But it's tricky. It has to be, you want what the person has, not that the person shouldn't have it. And it has to obviously correlate to a talent and an asset and a resource that you have, otherwise it's futile. But you can use the person to awaken inside of you perhaps the point that you could do that and then check in to make sure that you can. So, so why is that only limited to Torah stages? What about if I look at, let's say, like uh, a rich person, I go, wow, if I work really hard as hard as he does, or is that... Like, so that's a good point. Um, you know, there, there are other areas, and it could be certain concerns. You know, you can't, in one or two sentences discuss the multiplicity of human con- the human condition, but so generally the aspirations for wealth are, are not a healthy aspiration, because money is never gold, it's always a byproduct. So if a person seeks to be wealthy, that's just uh, going to be an exercise in, in frustration. But let's say you see a person who is, you want to be a great doctor, and the person's a great doctor, and you want to emulate him, and Something which has worth, which has intrinsic value. Right. right. So, uh, that could also be okay. Yeah? Oh, 
Don't just go for that. Like a great Muslim teacher, for example. Say like you're, you're going into, wow, that person's a great Muslim teacher. I want to be able to teach Muslim like that great Muslim teacher, for example. Yeah. And then like you thought, oh, how can I do that? And then you think, oh, that, that would be like something I think would be praiseworthy. And you'll bring, <laughs> yeah, they'll bring out a lot. Just getting questions from, if I, are you in the back there? The, how, how do we define jealousy? The way I understand jealousy is that you have something that you want something that someone else has and that only they can have. For instance, the Torah speaks about like wanting another man's wife. Only that man can have his wife. So only a certain person can have that Torah knowledge. So maybe you're saying, I want to have Torah knowledge like that person. Well, that wouldn't be jealousy if you're saying it's like that person. I don't want what that person has necessarily. So how do we define what jealousy is in terms of like, where, I mean like what Shemar, uh, what Shemaria was asking or Mark, you know, we speak about it, yeah? Um, is a very good question. Like when you say, I want to be successful like that person, or I want that person's success. <coughs> Great distinction. Great distinction. Um, I think with everything in life, whether it be wisdom or anything else, you can only ever have what is yours. So you're right. When you when you when you're jealous of healthy things. The jealousy promotes, as I was just discussing with Mark, but I think you've clarified it, promotes the desire and the motivation to activate my own drive in that area. Now, if I don't have a drive in that area, so then that's false. But let's say I do. So very often, it's, just, it's a reality that I'll see someone doing something, I'll say, well, why can't I do that? And if I can't, then I shouldn't. But sometimes I can. Now, when I do that, it won't be that. It will be my that. But without seeing that person, I may never have dreamed of doing it. Very often we need someone else to break the form in the mile before we do. In fact, most of the successful businesses are built off someone else's failure. Isn't like Google came in after MySpace or... What? Facebook. Facebook came after MySpace. Sorry. Messing up my, my IT knowledge. Truth is, I've never actually been on a computer. <laughs> like, you actually get onto the computer. I'm joking. I know that you don't get onto the computer. But I do know that there's a cousin of mine who's working for some IT company in, in, in help. And someone phoned him up and said, Hello. He said, Hello. She said, Is that the internet? <laughs> it's like, it's like one, one wonders what, like, what paradigm they were working from <laughs> hello the internet could I speak to Mr. Internet do you, know, do you know the story of how MySpace collapsed no but I'd like to hear it why not so, somebody all... made like for fun they made like a little computer script that basically made it that whenever somebody viewed his profile their profile would turn into his profile like it would have used that photo that name and everything and within like a few hours, all of my space turned into that guy's profile. <laughs> yeah, I think he went to jail too. <laughs> so, so like just to maybe like, like I think I think it's a great analogy actually, and I'm glad you brought that that's up. That's why I was, I was bringing it up for the analogy. For the analogy, yes, because yes. I mean that, that that shows how I mean I think that's kind of that's the analogy of life. How MySpace collapsed. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? Very often what happens is that the minute we switch and we try to make 
your profile into my profile. In other words, we don't we don't look at you as you and me as me, but we look as well. Everyone's just there for me, aren't they? They're all just there to like pan you to my propping up of my mythical self-esteem. Not that my self-esteem is mythical, but self-esteem is a myth. As we all know. As we all know, it's some kind of invention where a person arbitrary, arbitrarily quantifies his own ego. So, when that happens, when that happens, what also happens is, ultimately, there's no one else in the world but me. And everyone else's profile just becomes mine. So I think the kind of lesson we can learn from the MySpace collapse is a lot of what we're talking about in the Chavis of Ovis. That is, when you, become, when you become caught up in people-pleasing, in jealousy, in belittling people because obviously of your own incapacity to actually deal with the situation in a healthy way, you're actually not alive in the world. You're living this fantasy where everyone's profiles have collapsed into your own. And that's tragic. That's tragic. The kind of that minuscule life where all that exists is just your own tiny, tiny atomic self. How tragic. And therefore, wouldn't it be liberating and so rescuing to be able to save ourselves from this? And that's exactly what the the Seichel is trying to coach gently this nefesh to doing. So I think that's very powerful words from the Chavis Alvavis and just so beautifully expressed. One, one, one shudders to think that it was written over a thousand years ago. The wisdom is so fresh, so compelling. It's good. It's grateful just for having that ability to read and to comprehend and to deal with and to, to be in this room with with you fellows and to share that. So I want to, I want to thank you all for, for that as well. And I want to thank Shmuel for that MySpace analogy, which was perfectly timed. And that's exactly what I had in mind. And that's exactly what I had in mind. So thank you all. And uh, look forward to reconnecting very soon.